0: Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. California. Can I get
1: excursions? We're
0: watching! Time for chill vibes. Beach, yoga! How about a garden tour? Park.
1: Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego!
0: If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. more info now.
1: Hi everyone, Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Guys, this week is extra special because we have an extra episode for you today with actress Simone Missick. Simone is a rule breaker. She is a badass and she has broken through some pretty serious glass ceilings. She played TV's first African-American female superhero, Misty Knight, on Netflix's hit series Luke Cage. She stars as Judge Lola Carmichael on All Rise and has played so many other incredible roles. Also, if you have not seen her on the second season of Altered Carbon, you have to watch it. She's unbelievable. I loved talking to her about her roles, how she got into acting, what her journey was, her faith, her family, and the influence that they had on her, and so much more. Naturally, we dove right into talking about all the things, so here you go. Enjoy. Your show, All Rise, was actually the first primetime scripted series to embark on virtual production to do an episode tackling what's going on right now with COVID. What can you tell us about that? And
0: and what was the experience like? We actually don't start shooting for another couple of days. So we haven't done it yet. So I can't tell you what it's going to be like. We can do a follow-up five minute of what that was, but what is so cool about it is, um, you know, we're all just such a tight group. There's like a group chat with our producers and the core seven main castmates. And so we all just periodically check in. How's everybody doing? What's going on? And we get a text message from uh, one of our executive producers, Michael Robin. He's like, hey, We're going to hop on a, you know, a Zoom call and we're all just thinking, oh, this is just for us to chat, catch up, make sure everybody is safe and sound. And they're like, they dropped the bomb. Like, "Uh, actually, we're going to do this Zoom episode. And we all immediately were like, yes, this is so great. And so our our showrunner, our co-showrunner and creator, Greg Spottiswood, started reading the outline of what he had come up with and what he thought it was going to be. And we were all just like, yeah, I mean, you would think we were doing the episode. We were so excited about, you know, just the turns and what this meant for each character in the middle of the reality of what this COVID-19 is and, you know, how the justice system is trying to manage, you know, Mm -hmm. protecting people's constitutional rights. And yet, This is a a crisis where judges and lawyers are not necessarily able to do the things that they were once able to do. And you still got people, Mm -hmm. you know, we're hearing these reports every day of prisoners who are getting sick inside of jails. They can't get water or soap or, you know, just basic necessities, Mm -hmm. let alone medical care. And, you know, are we leaving these people to die? All of these things that the show can tackle. So we were already excited about it without without knowing exactly what the storyline is going to be. Still haven't read the script yet, so I can't, I can't tell you. But from what they proposed, it's really obviously timely and it's exciting. But because of the way that our show is set up, uh, our Greg always says, you know, our actors are our production value. We don't have any big explosions. We don't have any shootouts. It's you guys, you know, and your relationships every single day. That audiences are drawn to and they want to watch, and so without needing those other things, you can realistically shoot an episode via Zoom, which is what we're going to do. And so it's it's wow. exciting. I just got a, a package with the equipment, some of the like things to juice up my Wi-Fi, to, and you know it's and they're just going to figure it out. We're doing another test wow. run tomorrow just to see if. The technology works, you know, our own individual computers and Wi-Fi and all that stuff. But yeah, this is—it's exciting, and and I, you know, I've heard that there are other showrunners, very famous showrunners, reaching out to their, uh, you know, parent companies and saying, "How can we take these ideas, these shows that we were supposed to run with, and do them virtually?" So hopefully, this is opening up the door for other shows to take suit, for other production companies to figure this out. Because, you know, it's this is hard on so many people for so many levels that if we can figure out a way to keep people entertained to and to keep it present, you know, mm-hmm. for it to deal with what people are dealing with every single day, I think mm-hmm. that it'll help the world, you know, manage what's going on in a, in a brighter light
1: and it's so cool to me because your show has such a consciousness and and there are so many important conversations that you're having about what social justice looks like, what the criminal justice system looks like, disparity, how people are treated, what happens to communities of color, what's going on with policing and and to be able to continue having conversations like that. And to your point that you made earlier, even what's happening to prisoners with COVID to, to be able to do that in such real and immediate time and make sure that you're addressing all of those issues through the lens of this pandemic, which is highlighting such flaws in our system. And these are things that I think any, any conscious person or political person was, was aware of, but to see them like this is so hard and and I'm excited to see the ways that you guys are able to bring those conversations to the forefront even during this.
0: yeah yeah it I definitely feel fortunate to be a part of a show that does want to talk about those disparities and those realities that you know I think we all, at times, turn a blind eye to, or we perhaps feel so overwhelmed by the issues that we're dealing with that we forget, you know, oh man, I can't, I'm out of work, or, you know, my sister is out of work. How can I support my sister? How can I support my brother or my aunt or my grandmother who's, you know, in a nursing home or an elder care facility? Not what is happening to the hundreds of thousands of men and women behind bars, perhaps unjustly, perhaps overcharged or completely innocent. And that perhaps
1: just not being able to afford bail to be able to afford bail. And
0: those people are left to die. You know, Mm -hmm. we, we are so acutely aware of women and men who are in the medical profession, first responders, police officers, um, the the grocery store workers and delivery people who are are literally putting their lives on the line to keep the country going, to keep the world going. Mm. But we don't think about the vulnerable being criminals. We, you know, I think that a lot of people Think that once you commit a crime or once you get wrapped up in the you know, the criminal justice system, you are not a life that deserves saving. Why would I put my life on the line to help someone who is a criminal? A lot of people do that. Um, and as a person who's on the show that examines what happens and how people and why people get caught up in this system... That is so broken. I think it is great to be able to highlight, you know, that this is affecting everyone, not just Mm. the sheriffs and the deputies that have to go into those prisons, but the prisoners themselves, the the people who mop the floors and the you know every single person Mm. that's attached to it. I have a really good friend that's a sheriff, and when this all started, she was told, "Don't expect any days off." If anyone has had a vacation planned, cancel it. And this was a month and a half ago. This was at the very beginning of it when we really didn't know what this was going to be and how difficult this was going to be for everyone. Uh, and every single day that she goes out, she, t- she as if there was no coronavirus, she is putting her life on the line. And now doubly so. And the, the humanity that is still required to do your job in law enforcement in the midst of this crisis that's happening, that every person you come in contact with, you could be, you know, doubly uh, taking that risk. And so, you know, I'm I'm excited to see how we're able to shine a light on some of those things and then do it in our way, which is, you know, with just a little bit of hope and a little bit of humor and to find to find joy in what is and otherwise can be overwhelmingly depressing, you know, situation.
1: Mm -hmm. I love that. I can't wait to see it. I can't either. I'm so curious. We've gotten into work, but I do really like to go back and get close to starting at the beginning. And you are such a conscientious and and conscious person. And I wonder, were you always like this? You know, I, I, I always wonder, I'm like, who, who were my guests when they were 10? Like what was Simone as a little girl into? I, I know that you grew up in Detroit. Yeah. What was life like? Oh God.
0: So um, I was, n- goodness, life in Detroit was great. First of all, I am thankful every day for growing up in that city. It was so important uh, to who I am today, to the voice that I have, to the awareness that I have. You know, I've got parents who were very um, politically conscious and active um, and active with union work. And my dad was an adult educator. And so he, you know, spoke out about the disparities in education for not just public schools, but adult education, public schools. And, you know, my mother was a social worker. And so I got to, from her understand the things that happen that get kids caught up in the foster care system. And, you know, so I just grew up with an awareness of activism in a way
1: Mm.
0: I remember going to marches when I was a kid. And, and yet at the same time, I played basketball, I ran track, I played tennis, I played golf, I uh, played the violin and I was given the opportunity to do and try Anything that I wanted when I was a kid. You know, Mm -hmm. my dad always tells this story, this story about uh, first of all, they would always say, You have to pick something. You just have to pick one thing because it was always, Well, I really, I want to do this now. And they were like, Okay, I guess. And he just really wanted me to focus on one thing. And now, realizing as an actor, all the things that you need in your toolbox. I clearly mm. had the foresight <laughs> way before he did that all of these things would come into play at some point. But I remember my first like week in high school, freshman year, we're supposed to, you know, pick your activities. And my dad said I came home with like seven different activities that all went on at the same time. I was like, okay, so I wanna run track and play golf. He's like, that's the same season. And I want to play basketball and I want to, and he's like, that's going to happen at the same time. You can't go to both practices. And I was like, well, I don't understand why I have to choose. And so for me growing up in Detroit, I just got to do so many things um, that, you know, my little heart desired creatively and, and, you know, mm. sports and activities. I went to farm camp in the middle of the city because when I was really young, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And so I raised farm animals at the Michigan State Fairgrounds in Detroit proper three years in a row, brought chickens home to my garage on the east side of Detroit and raised them for weeks before we took them to fair and, you know, presented them. Things that, you know, when you think about Detroit, you think a little black girl in Detroit from a working class family, you don't think of these things. And yet um, I had the ability to do them. I went to music camp and traveled internationally with my orchestra and played the violin. And, you know, I just had a lot of great experiences that my parents, you know, opened me up to. And I was not always, uh, what's the word? I wasn't always confident in. This profession being where I was going to end up. I mean, from the time I was maybe eight, I knew that I wanted to be an actor. My sister is eight years older than me. She was in high school. She was in drama class. She would come home and do monologues. And Mm. I remember she did a monologue from uh, August Wilson's Fences. And I was like, oh, that's what I want to do in life. And yet had no blueprint for what that was. My sister went on to, you know, not become an actor. She, you know, that was just an activity that she did in high school. I knew no professional actors. I knew no working actors in the city. And so for me, I was like, okay, this is what I know I want to do, but I'm not telling anyone. Uh, And, and Mm -hmm. these parents who were super supportive of every single thing I did had no clue that I wanted to be an actor until my sophomore year of college. And then Even then, I think that there was a part of them that was like, this is just another thing that she's, you know, experimenting Mm -hmm. in and and trying. Mm -hmm. Uh, My dad was, is very pragmatic and he was like, you know, yeah, this is great, but make sure you have a backup plan. You know, you graduated Mm -hmm. with a degree in in English. Don't you want to teach while you're, you know, waiting for this to come, come together? And I was like, no, I have to wait tables because that's what actors do. We wait tables (laughs) and we keep our schedule open, even though anybody who's waited tables knows that that is like the shittiest schedule to try to have a working actor career in. Um, But they always supported me. You know, they they never Mm -hmm. told me that this was impossible, that it wasn't going to happen, that, you know, they just... They obviously, like any parent, they want the best for their kid and they want them to mm. to not suffer through disappointment and pain and loss and all that. But, you know, they never said, when are you going to hang this up? And thank God they always, you know, supported me in everything that I did. They would show up to, mm. you know, my little, uh, to everything, like to a short film mm. to a improv show to a, a play, everything they showed up for. And um, yeah, and if, if it wasn't for their support and, you know, being a Christian and having having the, the faith and the, the belief that, OK, I have to be patient. This might not happen overnight, but if I truly believe that this is for me, it will happen. Mm. That That was, you know, how I kind of went from being this little kid who was like, I think this is something that I really want to do to, you know, where I am now, which I, I still pinch myself often that I can't believe that this has actually happened
1: to me for me. Don't you love that that doesn't wear off? Because I feel that. Sometimes I look around and I'm like, I can't believe they let me in here. I know. I definitely <laughs> no. think that. Um, yeah, I,
0: I... Definitely pinch myself often. And I mean, you've been a working actor for a very long time. I, if you really look at it, have been a consistently working actor for five years. You know, before Mm -hmm. that, I moved to L.A. in 2005 and I, you know, did the shuffle. I waited tables I picked up, you know, all kinds of odds and end jobs. I tried to balance with, okay, where am I spending my money this month? Am I taking an acting class or am I Mm. doing workshops? Am I taking new headshots or am I doing a a commercial acting, you know, Mm. seminar? Where am I filling the holes? How am I, you know, strengthening my craft or keeping myself busy or keeping myself motivated. And it was always this kind of, you know, balancing act, or I I would even think of it more of like a -a whack-a-mole where it's like, let me go and hit this. Oh, nope. Now something popped up over here, you know, and that was 10 years, you know, 10 years of being in LA. I think when I booked my I know when I booked my first big job, which was uh, Luke Cage for Netflix, Mm -hmm. I had one, no, three co-star roles on my resume. No guest stars, no cool arcs on a show, no recurrings. I had never tested for a network pilot. I didn't test for a network pilot until All Rise. And even that, Right. Which was last year. And even that was not a typical network pilot test where there's, you know, you, seven other people, they bring you in the room. They're like, all right, you guys are great. You guys, thanks so much. And then you come back and you do none of that. It was me in a room with the nine people who were praying that I was the person for this job or else this pilot was not going to go for two hours. Just me. And that was my job to to get or to not get. And so for me, all of it, every day is like, I cannot believe that five years ago, I was delivering laundry. I was like, you know what? I got to figure this out. I I clearly am not where I think I should be as an actor. So let me go and pick up another job. Let me go and, mm. you know, what do I need to do to bring some money home because I feel like sitting at home, I am driving myself crazy saying to myself, right. well, I should, I should, it should happen by now. And so the, that was an interesting time.
1: The shoulds are so hard though. Whew. Cause we do that. My, one of my best friends, Emily always says to me, cause I, I can really get into, well, I should have done this by now and this should have happened by now. And she'll go, would you stop shooting all over yourself?
0: Yes. I and have it's a so... really good friend who said that.
1: I'm so enamored with the way you speak about choosing to always double down and study more and take another class and do another thing because you, I mean, you, you had such incredible schooling. You, you went to Howard. Mm -hmm. I know that you also studied at the British American drama Academy in Oxford casually with Ben Kingsley. Don't worry (laughs) about it. I was like, I'm sorry, what? Um, so what you know, because you talk about getting the performing bug, I guess by way of your sister and yeah. her bringing things home, and then, and then, how did you decide to go to Howard? And what did you study there? And and how did you wind up at Oxford?
0: So I, um, my dad went to Howard, my aunt went to Howard, my grandmother went to Howard. So I'm technically you know, the third generation of a Howard student who had no desire to go to Howard. No one in my (laughs) family was like, oh, you got to keep the legacy going. Like they didn't even talk about it. It was the strangest thing ever. And I had a a basketball coach who was also my advisor when I was in school. And in high school, I had, I think I graduated with a 3.8 GPA but when it came time to, like, scholarships and where am I going, I had gotten sick my senior year of high school. This girl on my basketball team, I'll never forget her, but I will not out her, gave me mono because she came to practice drinking on the water bottles. And she had it. And I was the only person who got sick. And I was out of school for mm. a month my <sighs> senior year and di- missed So many of the deadlines were, you know, and and at the same time, it just wasn't at the forefront of my, you know, thought process. Like when I look at kids who are like their junior year, you know, where can I apply for this scholarship? I need to get these letters in. That was just not my, you know,
1: Mm. my
0: mental space. It was like, okay, I got to go to practice. I got to do this. I got to do that. It was very in the now. And so my um, advisor, Coach Kennedy, was like, you know, how do you not have any scholarships? And I was like, I don't know. And um, <laughs> he's because at the time I was co captain of my varsity basketball team, I was concert mistress of our orchestra, and I had a 3.8 wow. GPA. And he's like, How the fuck do you not have anybody
1: paying for you to go to school? And yeah, he's so, like, do you understand you're perfect on paper and <laughs> and apparently in real life, what's going on? And I was like, ah, okay. <laughs> and there
0: was a weekend tour at Howard. And I was like, I mean, yeah, sure, I, I guess. You know, my grandparents lived there. My dad's from D.C., so all of my family on my dad's side was there. I'd grown up mm. going to D.C., and the concept of living there wasn't scary, but I really wasn't thinking about Howard. And I went for this weekend visit And it was like an explosion. It was overload of just like the coolest, the coolest thing that you could ever imagine. It was like the movie School Days by Spike Lee on 100. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is where I'm going. I I fell in love with that school the moment I hit campus. And so I got a scholarship, Mm -hmm. an academic scholarship to go. And my parents, you know, they were like supportive. I, up to that point, I had applied to Columbia and Duke and, you know, just a bunch of different schools that I didn't necessarily pick because I thought, oh, they have a great this program. It was like, oh, these are great schools. Hmm. And and that is where what I think is so interesting. I uh, was always a year younger. So when I was a kid, I got promoted. And so... I was 17. I was 16 entering into my senior year, 17 when I graduated. And I think developmentally, just a little behind, like with the things that make these major life decisions that we ask for kids to make their senior year of high school. I I was just a tad behind. I was smart, but wasn't really, you know, thinking about the bigger picture in that way. So I, I, got into Howard, uh, got a scholarship, academic scholarship, and was studying English, which was always my, you know, strong suit. And I remember my uh, AP English teacher was like, Simone, you do such a good job speaking. You should be like Cokie Roberts. You should be like Cokie Roberts. What a reference. And I was like, (laughs) fuck yeah, I'm going to be Cokie Roberts. And (laughs) not you know, really having the desire to do it, but knowing that I wanted to speak and, Mm. you know, present in front of people. And when I think about it, every school project I had, I turned into a skit or some Mm. kind of like, you know, interactive something or other. I remember Mm. I won the science fair when I, I got third place in the science fair in the fourth grade for a very simple experiment which was a paper towel pickup. Who? Which paper towel absorbs the most? But I did it on VHS. My dad recorded me doing it, and so there was this wow. desire from a very young age to present. And so I went to Howard English scholarship. My a scholarship, you know, and I was studying English. And a friend of mine from high school, sophomore, uh, excuse me, second semester of freshman year, was like, "Hey." I'm taking this acting for non-majors class. You should really take it. It's a lot of fun. And I said, okay. And that was it. I took the class. I was surrounded by a bunch of people who also, you know, kind of thought that they could or enjoyed the idea, or maybe they did it in high school. And mm. and I had this really great professor, Professor Kim Bay. This was her first semester at Howard teaching. She later went on to become the department head of the drama department, is still someone mm. that, you know, I casually uh, reach out to, but who sends students to me to say, hey, this is a former student of mine who has made it. I see this in you of what I saw in her. You two should mm. connect. And so she really encouraged me. She was like, you know, I think, I think you're really good at this. You should Continue to take classes. And I remember saying to her, like, well, should I change my major? You know, should I become a theater major? She's like, no, just take as many classes as you can. And mm-hmm. so by the time I graduated, I had a minor in theater. I could have double majored in it if I wanted to stay, I think, another half a semester, but I wasn't interested. And so mm-hmm. I double ma- I, you know, had that minor. And my senior year, Bada came to audition for people to be a part of the program. And I was like, well, why not? And I auditioned and got in. And it was I was one of two from Howard who ended up, you know, getting the money together and going to study <clears throat> that wow. year, which is crazy. But it, again, is a testament to my parents, just always supporting me financially with, you know, figuring out what I wanted to do. And I, I had gone to Europe when I was in high school with this international orchestra and I remember going, I don't want to go. I have changed my mind. I want to just stay in Detroit. And they were like, are you out of your rabid mind? You are going to Europe. Like what kid passes up going to play the violin internationally. <laughs> and I was like, but I want to stay in Detroit with my friends. And so having that experience made the concept of Bada, you know, not terrifying at all. And so I went and had an amazing mm. time. Um, and made some very cool friends in that experience. And, you know, some of them are still working writers and actors right mm. now, which is amazing. Um, a friend who's a playwright, very accomplished. Another friend who created a show on Netflix, that, and wow. he's also on a show on HBO. Like, just... And another friend who's no longer with us, but, you know, was on True Blood. And so just great people to be in that same class with. And yet at the same Mm -hmm. time, that young, undeveloped, at this time, I'm now 20, I think I was 20, or I just turned 21. So this 21-year-old brain that was still, I think, just a step behind. And so the experience, Mm -hmm. as enriching as it was, I think probably would have affected me differently had I done it two years later or three years later. But at that Mm -hmm. time I was still figuring out who I was as a person, who I was as, you know, Simone. And, you know, so, so much of acting technique that some people teach is like, you know, tap into your trauma, your pain, you know, think about your dead grandmother. Substitute. I was like, nobody's dead. I wasn't raised in a in a violent, you know, family. I came from a, a life without a lot of trauma. And these things just aren't serving me to figure out how to be the best, you know, creative. Mm. And so when I moved, I moved back home to Detroit after I graduated and finished up at Bada, and I Started doing uh, regional theater there and, you know, doing plays, which was fun and interesting. And I called up Professor Bay and I was like, you know, I think that I should move to L.A. or New York or Chicago. It was just, you know, budding as like another area. This was before Atlanta had, you know, any industry before New Orleans. But I was like, where should I go? And, and she talked me through figuring out what I wanted. Not her telling me, well, this is what you should do. She was like, well, you know, if you had to pick, which one would it be? Okay. And I was like, should I go to grad school? She's probably not. She did not <laughs> encourage me to go to grad school, which I think is so funny. But she was like, probably not. You should, you know. So I picked LA and I said, okay, so what should I do now? She's like, save your money. Just save it. So I stayed in Detroit mm-hmm. for a year and a half and worked and saved up money and until I, I had a number that I was like, okay, this is what I feel comfortable as. And when I moved out, I had, you know, three peripheral friends that I had known from college who were out in LA and were actors. And I had called them up because I'm a planner. And I was like, okay, what do I need to do to prepare to be in LA? And there and and you know, what what should I do as an actor? And they were like, try to join SAG, which in Detroit, where there is no industry for acting, you're like, okay. Yeah like, try to be a millionaire. And uh, <laughs> that's, is, that's as realistic as it was at the time. And so when I moved to LA for the first few years, it was really just a lot of figuring it out, you know, taking mm-hmm. a class here and a, a workshop there. And, you know, like I said, waiting tables, which took up a lot of time, but then also being a kid, like I
1: mm-hmm.
0: had a good time just growing up, for a couple of years mm-hmm. and going out and partying and sleeping in and, mm. you know, not focusing on acting, which there were some parts of me that thought, you know, with the should, I should be doing this or I should have done that. Or I, and then the other part thinking, oh, I have to have a life and these experiences in order to feed into this art that requires so much emotional work so much Mm -hmm. life that you have to add into it. And so I spent a good amount of time just growing up and experiencing things. And then I met my husband um, and we met in 2010. And Mm -hmm. at that time I had figured out just a little bit more, you know, I felt like I had my my legs under me. I was um, doing theater in LA, which people always like theater in LA, but I was, you know, I keyed in with some really great, uh, local equity houses. I was um, doing what felt right. I had found mm. this great acting uh, teacher, a woman named Carrie Keen, who is a, a working actor, but she really helped me to uncover a lot of things about myself that mm. were acting things, but then also just practical things like Simone are you drinking enough water are you getting enough rest why are you always tired just things that as an actor if you want to be on set for 12 hours you need energy you have to take care mm-hmm. of yourself and so she she helped me in a lot, in a lot of ways too in addition to figuring out you know my instrument and how to use it and when i met my husband he for the next 5 years just kept me motivated. And he kept you know, mm. saying to me, you're really good. If you are doing in the room what you're doing when we are running these auditions together, you're right there. You're just this close. It's going to happen for you. I believe it. I see it. I'm on set. I work with people all the time you are no less talented as these people. You just need one yes. Mm. You need one opportunity. And so for five years, he kept, you know, me encouraged. And, you know, I had Mm. him to pray with. I started a Bible study with my girlfriends that were also actresses. And so we would pray with each other. And then slowly but surely, things just started coming Mm. into place and kind of lining up. And again, it was... Until Luke Cage, it was nothing that was just like, and the world has opened up. It was never right. like, and now this has happened. It was always just small incremental things. I got into the NBC Diversity Showcase and I met my lawyer who then helped me find my manager. Mm. But that wasn't like, okay, and now this next pilot season, you're testing for everything and you're doing this. It was like, okay, okay. I got this offer to do a play. I'm going to go to San Francisco for three months in the middle of pilot season. And she's like, mm. yeah, go for it. There will always be a pilot season. Wow. You're not going to miss anything. you know." And so by the grace of God, I just kept getting these people and these experiences mm. that helped me mm. to get to where I needed to be to audition for Luke Cage and eventually land that job and, and
1: that to happen. When you auditioned, for the role of Misty Knight, Mm -hmm. is it true that you didn't know you were auditioning for a Marvel character? Yes. Get out of here. How how does that even work? The
0: power of an NDA and a hungry actor who asks no questions. (laughs) I asked no questions. And I'm sure that the majority of the women who were, considered for that role or who were going in for it had way more understanding of what this was like I can't imagine my people today going yeah it's just just put yourself on tape for this and you know them not saying just trust us right them (laughs) not saying okay so we have the inside scoop this is going to be the new marvel you know but they're not talking about it it was just Mm -hmm. like okay here's this job Sign this NDA and put yourself on tape in your living room. And that is what wow. happened. And I still did not know until it got down to the callback that
1: Whoa. it
0: was for Marvel, but I had no idea that it was for a superhero. I just knew that it was some series that they were doing on Netflix, and that was it. And had
1: wow. this was
0: before Daredevil came out, I think. So or no, Daredevil was out, but there was, there, I wasn't doing recon on this because up to that yeah. point, I would, you know, audition for things that you knew they already had an offer out. Or I would get wind of something that, and by the time I found out about it, it was already cast. So there was no hmm. impetus on my part to put more into this than just mm-hmm. the audition. And, I had no clue, you know, who she, who she was. And I definitely, you know, didn't know how big the potential of this was. I was just like, oh, you know, let me go in and impress the casting director because the chances of this going beyond that, mm. maybe not, you know, up to that point. And it was mm-hmm. funny, my When I first put myself on tape, this was the first time that I had worn my hair naturally curly. And I don't know why I did that. I was just like, fuck Mm. it. Because so often as an actress, especially an actress of color, so much shit is about the way that you look. But then Mm -hmm. the way that your hair looks for a Mm. Black woman is like that times 10. It's like, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I have friends who are not Black, but they're actresses. And, you know, they deal with the same, like, what should I do? What should I wear? How should I look? How do I want to present myself? And then when you're a black woman, it's like, should I have my hair curly or straight? Should it be a weave or a wig? Mm -hmm. Should it be, you know, all of these things that are Mm -hmm. the dumbest things to have to focus on, but so often people are not creative and they don't Mm -hmm. imagine. And so you Mm -hmm. have to imagine for them. And so for some reason, I was like, I'm going to wear my hair naturally curly. And I remember. My manager called me up after I sent the, the tape. She was like, honey, that was great. And your hair, I love it. And I was like, okay, Stephanie, thank you. Cool. And didn't, okay. But she was so excited about it and so excited about the audition. And up to that point, she had never done that about any any audition that I'd sent her. She had never wow. called me up excited about it. And I was like, "That's that's different. Not because she didn't believe in me, not because, you know, it just wasn't, she had never done it before. And so a couple weeks later, I got a call and, and put that audition right out of my head. Didn't think anything of it. Mm. Uh, a couple weeks later, I got a call saying they wanted to see me again. And everybody was super excited. And I was like, why? <laughs> because up to that point, I had done a co-star on Scandal. A co star on Ray Donovan, you know, just a line here, a couple lines there, nothing that was so mm. earth shattering. And so I was surprised at how excited everyone was. And at the same time, I was in rehearsal for a play that was opening up, and I was in mm. tech week, so I was tired, and I was, you know, I had no time to really focus and think about and ask those questions. Like, well, what is it? And did you find none of that? I'm like, I have to go on stage in a few days and be completely, you know, locked into this character. So I'm glad everybody's Mm -hmm. really excited about this mystery project that I don't know what it is, but I got other stuff to do. And then because of how small Hollywood is, my husband started getting, you know, word of what this was. Oh, this mm. is a Marvel project. Oh, these people are doing this. And I was like, shut up. I don't want to hear don't any tell of it. Me. Don't tell me anything. Mm. I don't want to be stressed about it. And he, every day he would come and say just like a little thing because he's just so excited about stuff. So he would go, OK, they were thinking about such and such for the role, but they didn't go with that person because they're looking for unknown. That's all I'm going to say. Got to go. Bye. Because that was his way of making me think like, oh, you got a shot at this. And I was like, don't yeah. tell me anything. Like, I don't <laughs> want to hear any of it. And so the day before my audition, I got violently ill. I got this crazy summer flu, cold, oh. not a flu, thank God, but like this this cold that just racked me. I was... I mean, I could. I I was like, I have no understanding of how I'm going to go in here and do this performance. And I was taking like everything, everything. And the day before, I called my manager and I was like, um, I need you to see if we could push the audition later into the day because I I just don't even know. I I'm I'm about to lose my voice because the play had opened, and so I had done three uh, days of performances. And my voice was almost completely gone. And so I spent that whole Monday just on vocal rest, not talking. And so I was like, I need you to see if you could push back. She's like, okay. So then she called me back and she's like, "Um, so they can't push it back too much because they aren't seeing a lot of people. And I was like, huh, that's straight.
1: Okay. I'm not going to
0: think about that. (laughs) I'm not going to think about that. I'm just going to down Echinacea and Dayquil and so i uh, i went in that morning and i just i just prayed to god just give me 10 minutes all i need is 10 minutes just 10 minutes with my nose not mm. running 10 minutes with me not you know hacking and coughing up i just need 10 minutes and i went in and it was at Leroy mayfield's office and there was the head of marvel tv one of the execs at marvel the show creator Another EP who I knew, but had never, he had never seen me act before. He was, he was someone who had worked with my husband before. And so mm. we knew one another, but had no real like relationship in that way. Mm. And me, and I, you know, I go in and I'm like completely cloudy head, stuffed up nose. And they're like, you ready? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I did. You know, each scene, did it one time. They were like, okay, can you do it like this? And I was like, sure. Did it like that? we are like, I think we've seen all we need. Cool. Do you want to go on to the next scene? Sure. I was cool as a cucumber because I was sick, like unbelievably <laughs> sick. And... You know, for whatever reason that worked <laughs> in a way that, you know, only God knows. And so I was not nervous at all, at all. Mm-hmm. And as I'm, as I'm leaving, Ray runs up after me. And I'm like, oh my God, this is that moment that every actor talks about when the casting director comes up and they're like, You fucking killed that audition. You were amazing. Thank you. And really, she goes, <laughs> your husband's agents and starts going off because my husband was up for a role on the show and there was some breakdown in communication and he booked another show and she was pissed because she was like, we wanted him for this. And so she comes up and for three minutes, she's going on about how... (laughs) how his people dropped the ball and said nothing
1: about my (laughs) audition. And I was like, great.
0: Thanks. Uh, It's pretty typical for my career at this point. No reason to question it any more than anything else. And um, then I think three days later, I found out that I got the job and it, I was in the middle of recording a seven page audition for another show. And was killing myself to get it uploaded in time. And my manager called me up and she's like, honey, I I just, I have to tell you, you're, you're killing yourself to, to get this audition up. You booked the role, you're, you're, you know, you booked the role. And then I got the call from the head of Marvel and he's like, congratulations, you are Misty Knight. And I'm like writing down Misty Knight things to Google later because I had no clue yeah. who this character was. You're I are like, who is that? Who is that? And I'm not asking him that. I'm like, what? This is amazing. Look it up later. And so when I saw what, I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe
1: it. And she's the first black female ever drawn for Marvel. The first black female superhero in a TV series. I mean, what a... What a space to step into. What power to step into.
0: Yeah. I, I, I still, I, you know, you, it's one of those things where you think about all the, all the things and the experiences and the moments that bring you to certain things in your life that you are prepared for. When the animators who originally drew this character drew her, she was from Detroit and she was living in Harlem. Because Arvell Jones, one of the uh, animators, is from Detroit. And so, you know, when Miss Knight was first crafted some decade and a half or, you know, however many years before I was even born, wow. this is where she was and this is where she was from. And I was like, there are no accidents. There are no coincidences. There are no, mm. you know, there are things that are meant for you. And I think had I really understood that in the first decade of being in LA. You know, I knew it. I would say it to myself often, but it's hard to truly believe it when you are constantly confronted with, no, not Mm -hmm. yet, not this. And yeah, sure. If someone had told me when I landed in LA, just give it 10 years and it's going to happen for you. I would go, okay, I'll sign up for that. I know it. Okay, mm. sure. And mm. my mom was s- like, you know, just the wonderful, supportive mother that she was. She would send me these articles about different actresses who it had taken eight, nine, ten years to really happen for. She's like, you know, Laura Linney mm-hmm. took her ten years before she, you know, really took off. You know, Amy Adams took her almost a decade. And she would tell me about these people. And I was like, yeah, 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 mom. Thanks. Sure. Yeah but I thought that I was going to be famous by 28. So you're kind of, you know, not really helping with my timeline. I appreciate it. (laughs) And so I, you know, but when I think about every experience, every experience that I had that prepared me for that role, I'm so infinitely thankful for it. Um, Mm. Just down to minor things, you know, they had written in the script that Misty's, you know, she rolls up on a basketball court and she challenges this young kid that she's questioning to a game of horse. Mm -hmm. They had no clue that I had played basketball. Mm. They had no clue that I, you know, knew anything about it. And so (laughs) when it happened on set, they, they, you know, they had written this scene. They hired me a basketball coach And Mm. she was this, you know, former NCAA champ. And she and I are just hanging out in Harlem. And she's like, oh, you don't need me. And I was like, yeah, but you might as well get paid for it. Why not? And so (laughs) I said, do me a favor, though. Don't say anything to them about, you know, whether or not I can play. She was like, got it. And so the day of, she's on set, dressed To look like me, they put, you know, they did her hair and all the whole nine.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm
0: on set and we shoot the scene and first take, nail that shot, nothing but net.
1: Oh God, I love that.
0: They yell cut and the entire crew goes crazy because they are all expecting for me to like two hand, chest push, you know, look like (laughs) a complete athletic nerd and they were like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. You know how to play yeah. basketball. I was like, yeah. Why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you assume that I could? Or why didn't you ask? You know? Why didn't you ask? Why didn't You're you like, yes, I
1: can ask? ball. So oh, that wow. was, you know,
0: one of those things where it's like, yeah, when your dad was telling you you had to pick something and and made sure that you stuck with basketball, Those were one of the, that was one of those things that just prepared you for this. And so, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm... So Mm. thankful that it took 10 years. So thankful that once it happened, I was so aware of all of the time and prayer and hard work and sacrifice that I had experienced. I didn't take it for granted. I showed up every day positive, thankful, excited. And the same thing is true on all rise. You know, who would Mm. say that five years from that, I would be the lead of my own show on CBS, the first Black female lead of a show on CBS. Yes. I I would never. I would never think that. And yet all of those no's got me to here. And so I'm Mm -hmm. so thankful for every no. I'm so thankful for every agent that was like, eh, not really our thing. Every casting director that ignored my, you know, submission. Every single... You know, just no. I'm so happy for it because I would not be where I am and I would not appreciate it in the way that I do. And I would not,
1: Mm.
0: you know, every person that comes to set, I try my hardest to make them feel comfortable and safe Mm -hmm. and respected. We have a crew and a cast that just leads in love. You know, there Mm. is no... You know, you hear about awful actors who might be the leads of shows who are like, yeah, my stand-in mm-hmm. can be there for your coverage. Mm-hmm. But I'm going I'm to go off and be in my trailer. Good luck. Um, or they don't talk to the people who they're working with. or You mm-hmm. know, we try to make everyone feel like they're a part of the family because they are. Yeah. And that comes from being on set and working background, you know, I, I did background. I remember I did one background job when I was uh, when I first moved out to L.A. I, and I said, oh, I don't ever have to do this again. <laughs> I've learned all I needed to learn by this. This is soul crushing. Mm. And then mm. when things weren't happening, I was like, well, maybe I have a a false sense of how wonderful I am or how to behave on set. Maybe I need to be around people who are doing it professionally. And so I did three background jobs the year that I booked Luke Cage because I said, yeah, maybe mm-hmm. I got it wrong. Maybe I don't know. And I got there and I was like, nope, I do know I'm good. But I remember having an experience with an actor. And now I cannot remember the name of the show. Crap. It was it was a show on HBO and it was starring Amanda Peet. And it was about these four friends who lived in LA. God, to together togetherness maybe? Yes. Okay. So it was togetherness. Yes. And the actor on the show, I don't recall his name, but he played the actor, the guy that wanted to be the, the professional actor. And I got cast to be an extra in a scene
1: mm.
0: on a day where he, finally gets his first big job and he's on this vampire pilot or a vampire show and he's super excited. And that guy was like the nicest person Mm -hmm. to the background actors. And here I am trying to hide because I'm like, first of all, I'm still a professional actor. And I know that eventually I'm going to be on the other side of that. So I don't want to be seen. I don't, I'm not the person who's trying to like, hey, I was the person who was trying to hide. And they were like, no, you, we want you to be the person walking by the front of the camera on this moment. And I was like, crap. And I remember he came up to me and he's like, What's your, what's your name? Simone. What what's your character name? Now he knows I'm background. He knows I don't have a damn name. I am extra number five. And he's like, What's your character name? And I was like, I forget what I said, but I, let's say I said Lily. He's like, okay, cool. He goes back to his one. He's walking through. He's like, hey, Lily, how you doing? And it was just the idea that he was aware that we were all in there together. That we're mm-hmm. all working together. That we are all a part of making this art. And that humility and generosity of spirit I have carried everywhere that I've gone, you know, mm-hmm. I don't look at our background actors as just human props because I know what it feels like to mm-hmm. be treated like a human prop. And so I, you know, just really appreciate having all of those experiences that have made all of this that much sweeter.
1: Mm, I love that. And that stuff lasts. I a couple months ago, a friend of mine had a birthday party when we could still be social. And... <laughs> this young guy comes up to me and it was like such a, it was a moment. Cause I knew I knew him and I couldn't think of why for a minute. And he runs up and he goes, Hey, do you remember me? And I was like, yes, from the, and he, and he tells me the episode of, of my show that he had done with me. And I was like, Oh my God, of course. And you're, you're bigger. Like how old are you? What's going on? And he had guest starred on my show in Chicago. And he was this beautiful kid. And we had this really gnarly episode together. And, you know, he was, I think he was like 16 or 17 at the time wow. alone in Chicago for a week. And we were talking about storytelling and I was telling him about, you know, some of my favorite things on NPR and and this, this storytelling night called the moth, mm, you know, that oh. moves around and, you know, the moth. And it's like so amazing. And it was happening in Chicago that week. And he was like, I've never heard of this. This sounds so cool. And so one night after work, I took him to see the moth with me. Wow! And he was like, that changed everything for me. Like that got me into, you know, these things and these authors. And now I listen to these podcasts and, and we just, I like almost cried. Yeah. And, and, you know, he, he was this lovely kid who guest starred for one episode, but like, we will always have each other's backs. Like I watch what he does and he supports my work. And we, we have such an opportunity as storytellers to do that for each other. And then I know what it is to go and, you know, guest star on a friend's show and go play with them for an episode and how amazing it feels to be welcomed in other people's spaces. And mm-hmm. it, it's, it's really magical. You know what, what we get to do is it's crazy and it's weird and it's emotionally insane and all those things, but it's magic too. Yeah. And
0: we have a we have mm-hmm. an opportunity to affect people and more than just them watching us on screen. It's the oh yeah, human to human connection. It is the you know, the decisions that we make to, to treat one another with care and, you know, you didn't have Mm -hmm. to do that with him. You didn't have to take him, you know, I can't imagine somebody's like, hey, let's go. And I'm like, what? Yes, sure. (laughs) And yet, you know, it it was that, that changed the trajectory of so many things for him. And so we get the opportunity to do that. And we're just lucky. We're so blessed. It's so cool. So lucky.
1: We think about, the opportunity to invest in people and grow alongside people and learn with people that I think we're so lucky to have as actors. Cause really it's our job to investigate, you mm-hmm. know, and, and to learn what has playing judge Lola, what has that taught you or, or opened up for you about the legal system? You know, are, are, are the stories you guys tell on the show? Are they based on real cases how, how has it kind of affected your lens?
0: So some of them are uh, based on real cases and what they've chosen to do, the writers, is to not pick, you know, those big headline stories. They're the things that are buried. the a small bit on, you know, the mm. seventh page of, you know, the news section. And I think what... Lola has interestingly taught me, you know, I've gotten to play these two strong women between Misty Knight and Lola Carmichael that have this sense of justice, have this desire to work within the criminal justice system
1: Mm.
0: and believe in it, like wholeheartedly believe in the foundations of it and what it is able to do and how they can work within it to uphold it and to change it for the better. That is Mm. not Simone. You know, that is not me. I look at the problems that exist and in a way feel helpless, in a way feel like I'm not doing enough, And I recognize that, okay, as a storyteller, that is the way that I can contribute to a certain extent is Mm. to tell these stories that highlight the injustice within our justice system. But what is so cool about Lola is, this is a woman who comes from an activist family. You know, her mother is an Mm. activist, community ground, ground, grassroots activism, And she goes off and becomes a deputy district attorney, like the antithesis of Mm. grassroots mobilization for activism. And it, it creates, you know, some real problems in their relationship. But what Lola tries to explain to her mother and what you see her explain to other characters and what her character explained to me is that when you are in that position, you get to determine who gets charged and with what. Mm-hmm. And it was a concept I had never thought about. You know, I always thought, uh, you know, I feel like every actor at one point is like, well, I could be a lawyer. <laughs> and so, you know, of course you're thinking if I were a lawyer, I would be a public defender. I would, you know, be mm-hmm. the person looking out for the little guy. I would be the person trying to overturn, you know, a wrongful conviction. And yet Lola comes from a position of I can make sure that this person doesn't get wrongfully convicted in the first place. I can make Mm -hmm. sure that if they if the evidence comes to me and it's flimsy, I'm not charging this person knowing that they probably didn't do it. And I'm not Mm. definitely not overcharging someone who I know that is that they are caught up in a system that wants to, you know, maximize the profit on poor people, you know. And so she definitely has illuminated a lot of things in that aspect. Now, Now, granted, she is a character and there are a lot of deputy district attorneys that are doing this for the political and career advancement. And they know that the more people they charge, the higher their mm-hmm. clearance rates look. You know, that's what is great about watching The Wire all over again. Hmm. You see in season one, you know, there's this great scene with McNulty and the woman who plays the the lawyer where he's like, if, if more of you didn't care about your careers perhaps we could actually do our jobs perhaps we could actually charge the people that need to be charged put the people away that need to be put away without worrying about pissing off the person who is the head of this association that will help you get to the next level in your career and so many i think people who are in this system and who are lawyers are not doing it for the right reasons. They're not doing Mm -hmm. it for the purpose of actually seeing justice served. Or they are, and their sense of justice and understanding comes from a very different perspective from the people who are being taken advantage of by the system, you know. And I I think that the character and the show really help me to understand that every person is just a human being trying to figure it out, Mm -hmm. good, bad, or indifferent. I, you know, listened to Serial, the podcast, before we started the show mm-hmm. because our Greg, you know, our show creator, was like, "This a lot of things within this will be explored," and so it's a good uh, podcast to check out. And there were so many different perspectives on that. And me being a black woman who comes from, uh, you know, inner city comes from Detroit, comes from a working class neighborhood, understands, you know, that when you let a school system and a work industry dry up, you basically ensure that people are going to wind up in the criminal justice system, Mm -hmm. you know, A plus B equals C, unless they are very fortunate and lucky to have someone pull them out based on seeing potential in them as, you know academics or artists or athletes. you know It's very rare mm-hmm. that you can fight yourself out of that if, that, if that's the, the playing ground that's set. Mm-hmm. And so to listen to Serial, which was set in Cleveland, a city very much like Detroit, and to hear some of these judges and lawyers and their just callous mm-hmm.
1: disregard
0: for the fact that these decisions that they are making to advance their careers, to line mm-hmm. their pockets, get the names and headlines are people's lives. Oh, we'll give him seven, seven years, seven months in prison changes your life. And yeah, you know, the the idea of unfairly charging people and knowingly uh, accepting pleas that were gotten illegally, you know, this happens every single day in this country, every single day around the world. And so it is refreshing to be able to play a character that, you know, seeks to to stop that from happening, but then recognizing that she's just one of few. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the show gets the chance to show multiple sides of the same the same, you know, situation.
1: Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. It's really incredible. And as if that weren't enough, now you're working with Anthony Mackie on the new (laughs) season of Altered Carbon. I'm also (laughs) just like, how do you have time to do all of this? Because you are the lead of a CBS show and you're just like, yeah, I played this superhero on Netflix and now I'm doing this dystopian future show on Netflix. Like, do you sleep? (laughs) Not a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what was great about Altered
0: Carbon is that happened uh, while I was, it, it, I Luke Cage ended in, I think, October. Mm. We found out that we weren't coming back or November. I'm still
1: upset about that, by the way, but that's for yeah. another day. Yeah, no, Me too. Me too. Oh. Um,
0: and yet... Here I am. So I can't complain. And yet here you are. Everything yeah. happens for a reason. And so we found out that that show ended at the, you know, in the, the last quarter of 2018. And January 2019, I get offered, I audition and get offered this uh, role on Altered Carbon. And I was like, oh, this is great. This is a strong woman. You know, she she's not a good guy necessarily like she's not whole in her heart and she's you know Mm. she's very singularly focused on making money and doing what she has to do to survive the opposite of Misty Knight which is great and I am out shooting that and that's when I get the call about auditioning for All Rise so I it was right in the middle everything happened in the middle. And, you know, I've mm. talked about this timeline. I, I got, I found out like on a Wednesday that they wanted to see me. I was off that day. Uh, no, I found out on a Thursday that they wanted to see me for this job. And I mm. happened to be off from Alter Carbon and I was in the gym and I was like, Oh, this is messing up my workout. <laughs> like just ridiculous. And so I had to, you know, in my workout, go shopping in Vancouver to look for pants because I had no lawyer pants and also learn the lines and talk to the executive producers on the phone. And then I mm. shot all day and night on Friday until like three in the morning. I had an action sequence that I was shooting and flew out that morning at 6 AM from Vancouver on Saturday, landed in LA, got a rental car, went to you know, the Airbnb, my husband and I were staying at, but he was out of town. And so I'm getting dressed and FaceTiming with him to, you know, run these lines that I just got the day before, you know, whatever. And then I go in for this two hour long audition, which was a marathon uh, in and of Mm. itself. Flew back to Vancouver, had that Sunday worked that Monday, found out I booked it on Tuesday, flew back on Wednesday for a table read and fitting, flew back to Vancouver to shoot that Thursday and flew back to LA to start production that Friday. And so it was all so quick. There was no time to think about it. They kept looking at me like, are you okay? because I was so happy and excited. I'm sure they mm-hmm. probably thought I had some kind of prescription drug problem because I, there were no complaints. <laughs> there was no tiredness. There was, it was like, are you serious? You're giving me the opportunity to be the lead of a show? And this character is mm. this cool and this fun and this goofy and this, you know, lovely and smart and, you know, what? Mm. No, I'm not tired. No, I'm not sleepy every day. They're like, are you sure you're okay? I'm fine. Do you need anything? Nothing. What do we want to do? Like I, I couldn't have, I I couldn't have gotten a better opportunity and in the middle of Hmm. shooting another great show. So it it was an embarrassment Hmm. of riches, but working with Anthony was so much fun. He's a friend of my husband's. They've known each other for years
1: and this Hmm. was the first
0: time we got to work together. So it was like working with family which is what you need when you're up in Vancouver by yourself for six months in the
1: winter. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, mm-hmm. But it was it was so great, it was such an amazing cast. Chris Connor and Ren- Renee Elise Goldsberry, and Dina, and, and you know, I didn't get to work with Leela a lot because her character and my character don't really intersect, but you know, the cast was so great, the crew was so mm-hmm. awesome, everybody was so lovely you know, you would come in and you're hugging everybody and you're like, how was your weekend? Yeah, how are yeah. your kids? You know, it was a, it was a great show to jump onto after Luke Cage, mm. after another family-like environment. I have not, you know, I, I, it is not lost on me that I'm working on great shows with great people. Um, yeah. and there are no weird divas you know, everybody has their moments, but you know, it's it just, I can't complain. And so do I sleep? Not as much as I, I did when I was waiting tables, but you know.
1: Who cares? <laughs> yeah, I feel that when you're really so fulfilled by what you're doing, you're like, give me more. I'm ready. Yeah, I'll take the flight. Yeah, I'll hop the thing. What do we need to do? How can I help? I'll get a coffee truck for the crew while I'm at it. Let's go. Yeah, like yeah. you're just so jazzed you want for for me anyway. I it's like there can't be too much of a good thing.
0: No. Absolutely not. And yeah. I I, I will not complain. I can't. I can't mm-hmm. imagine that I would be in my first opportunity leading a show uh, and want to walk away from it with any regrets about the way that I Mm. treated people or how much I appreciated it. And Mm. that can all change in the blink of an eye. We were literally shooting our second to last episode before the end of the season, when this happened, when coronavirus hit, I, I have no regrets. I do not feel like I did not give it my all I didn't make sure that my crew and cast felt loved and appreciated. Mm. I maybe I should have gotten more coffee trucks, but you know, other than that, I don't I don't regret anything. And if, you know, it takes months to get back to being able mm. to shoot with those people, I think that, you know, I I fully embraced whole heart open heart what this was and appreciated it so much that if something were to happen and, you know, CBS were to say, we're not coming back, you know, for whatever reason, we don't know what the future holds. I would not regret a single thing that I did in a single Mm. moment on set. And so I'm just, I'm, I recognize how quickly life can change I've had you know experiences in my life with with health and the health of loved ones that have shown me in the blink of an eye things can change quickly and so you know just to live every day with gratitude and excitement to to go into work you, you you're living the dream people we get to you know we get to do what we love every day and I've got our executive producer Michael Robin is like a unicorn of a human. Like we, We're we all amazed at how this man is as successful as he is and he's been around for as long as he is and is as loving and generous and kind as he is. Um, and he, you know, it starts from the top down. He's one of those people who's like, guys, you know, it's every day. Um, and I've never seen yeah. a happier crew. And it, it comes from, you know, having someone like that in the position that they're in, lead with love. No one yells on set. Mm. No one curses at one another. I mean, we all everybody slip up and yeah. you know, curse, but <laughs> not at someone. Um, exactly. And, you know, it is that type of personality and type of person that makes everybody happy to come to work every day.
1: Yeah. I just love that. I love that for you. I love that for your crew. It's it's so special.
0: I, and I, I recognize that it is. I, um, mm. I did a show, another show in between, you know, I finished season one of Luke Cage and I did another job. And Luke Cage was so, like I said, it was so loving. I knew every crew members' names, knew about their kids' soccer games and, you know, all yeah. that stuff. And uh, Mike Coulter would joke because he's like, oh, here comes Huggy Bear. Because I was hugging <laughs> every person that I, you know, that I saw on yeah. the way in. And it would take forever for me to get from my room to set because it's like, I haven't seen you guys in a day or a weekend. Yeah, And so um, I went and did this other show. And the crew didn't, they didn't talk to each other. I came on set, hey, how's everybody doing? And was met with blank faces and Uh silence. Like, is there anyone inside of there? Is a human? Is there a soul in this body? And it was so, it was such a good reminder that it's not a guarantee. It doesn't matter, you know, what level you are in your career. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you've just, you know, gotten off your first lead role in a series, if you're a series regular, you could go on to another show with another crew and they're like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I could care less. This is just where I punch mm-hmm. the clock. And I never wanted to have that for us on All Rise or any project that I have the fortune of being, you know, one of the leads on. I want everyone yeah. to, to be happy to be there because we spend more time with each other than we do with our families.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, and working to set a tone is so important. And I think such a reminder for anybody in any industry, you know, who's listening that you, you do have the opportunity to cultivate the energy of your workplace. Mm -hmm. And to your point, and I've, I've had my own version of this, when you can't, when something is not welcoming or unfortunately toxic, it can be an indicator that you deserve better. Maybe, maybe there's another opportunity. Maybe there's another place to go because it doesn't have to be negative. Yeah, We, you know, we can, we can create other things and mm-hmm. it's just so awesome that so many of the things that you've been doing have been so positive. Yeah. Uh, you
0: know, uh, not what, uh, again, life preparing you. I, I waited tables at the Cheesecake Factory when I first went mm-hmm. to LA. Met some of the best people ever. Some people, I'm <laughs> still a lot of those people I'm still friends with. One of one of my friends got to come and, you know, play on All Rise. Mm. It's just, you know, though. Those things are are great. But I remember when I first moved to L.A., I, I had just become a Christian the year prior or two years prior to, to moving to L.A. I didn't grow up in a religious family. And so when I moved to L.A., I was like, me and God got this. Like, we're good. And I remember when I started working at the Cheesecake Factory, everybody was like, this place sucks. The tips are trash the customers are awful. We get a lot of tourists that don't tip 20%. Good luck. And I remember looking at those people like, oh, (laughs) you don't know the God that I prayed to. Like, you don't understand how this is going to work out for me. And every table, I would get 20% or more from the most unlikeliest of places and people just blown away. They're like, how is this? We are miserable here with these, you know, people not tipping or, you know, walking out on the checks. How, are, how is this happening mm. for you? And I was like, I'm sorry. And after months <laughs> of having that constantly swirling around me, that negative energy from people who were amazingly lovely people, they were just, mm. you know, responding to what was happening to them, I started having the same feeling. Oh, this place yeah. is awful. I hate this place. I got shafted on my tables Why do I keep having to deal with these? And slowly but surely that that 20% started dwindling and dwindling and dwindling. And I was just as miserable as everybody else. And I realized I did it to myself. Mm. I let that negative, toxic believing, in fact, what I had. And the moment Mm. I realized that, the moment I realized that I had created that, it wasn't the tables. It wasn't the people. It was me accepting it, believe because then I started going into work thinking this shift is just going to suck like all the rest of them, you know, yeah. once I started doing that and that became my reality, I realized, oh, I have the power to create a negative space for myself and I will never do wow. that again. And so I was able to take that knowing, you know, that conscious awareness to every job I had thereafter and every acting job I've had. And, you know, nothing is perfect. You know, when I stepped on that set and nobody was nice and nobody talked to me and, you know, Mm. the director could care less about what I thought about the scenes. Sure, I could have, you know, taken it and gone, this is, I can't believe this is happening. I thought I, you know, graduated to this level of... I thought I had arrived. I thought I had arrived, and I was like, "Oh well, you know, they're not all gonna be Luke Cage. That's okay. You still walk in love and and be pleasant to people, and you know, serve people in kindness, even when they don't want it. So what? That's use that as a social experiment. How many times can you ignore me saying hello to you before you have to actually say (laughs) hello? Let me just try that out for today, you know. And so I, I, I just. I recognize that we are all human beings going through the same experiences, just in different bodies. And we're all going to respond to them differently. And, you know, I'm not perfect. Nobody is. But the the best mm-hmm. thing I can do is to just try to walk in love. That's it.
1: Mm. I love that so much. And I'm not perfect. It, it, nobody, well, is. nobody is. <laughs> that That opens a window to my my favorite question to ask everyone. And it is my final question. Thank you for giving us so much time today. This has been so fun. When we took our pause break, I said to my producer, Allison, I was like, I just want to hang out with her. (laughs) Like, I just want to hang with her. But this, this has been so lovely. So as you, as you know, the podcast is called work in progress. And I'm, I'm curious what in your life, be it, something personal or professional, really whatever comes to mind, what feels like a work in progress for you right now?
0: Is all of it an okay answer? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it really is. It's all of it. It's almost like, you know, that whack-a-mole. It's as soon as you think you've mastered one thing or got one thing under your belt, mm. you know, another thing pops up to remind you that you're still just, Growing, and I think about it. I I get a lot of time, especially now, to self reflect. I think about Mm -hmm. my strengths as an actor and the things that I'm not as strong in, and how during this time can I work on it. And you know, I watch Mm -hmm. a lot of other actors who I admire, and I go, "Oh, I still have so much to go. I still have so so much to grow." And how does that look as a working actor? You know, is it just working with other actors who are amazing? How many, Mm. when is it, how long is it going to take for me to work with Viola Davis, you know, in order for me to steal some stuff from her and and figure out her process? When it comes to my marriage, every single day is, you know, learning something more about myself uh, Mm. in addition to you know, it's, it's easier uh, when you're in the same city. It's extremely hard when you're both working actors on opposite sides of the country. Um, Mm -hmm. This experience taught me with the whole coronavirus quarantine, how to be a better friend. How often do I go and not check in on my friends because I know that they are my friends. And, you know, they'll forgive me if I'm like working 12, 16 hours and I haven't checked in. How do I be a better daughter, sister, aunt, daughter-in-law, you know,
1: Mm.
0: granddaughter? I'm forcing my family to FaceTime with with me once (laughs) a week, you know, in a a good way. I think we will all be works in progress until the day that we die. We are at Mm. all about. Being the best versions of ourselves that we can be and i've always said that about myself I just want to be the best simone You know, I don't want to be Carrie washington. I don't want to be meryl streep. I don't want to be mother teresa. I don't want to be my mom Although my mom is an amazing mother. I want to be the best version of me that I can be and I recognize that every day i'm changing and growing and Making mistakes and missteps that will teach me more and more about how to do that. You know, I was just praying this morning before we got on the call, recognizing that it took my mother in law getting ill for me to just hold on to God with everything that I had. I fasted mm-hmm. every day until she left the hospital. So from seven o'clock the night. Before I would eat and then after that meal I would not eat again until seven o'clock the next day and I spent the whole time in prayer because that was all I could do that was all I knew to do uh, and it wasn't mm-hmm. that anybody said like oh this is the way to you know it was just something that immediately hit me when I knew that she had to go in the ventilator and that need for that spiritual grounding that need to to just read the word and pray all day. And, you know, now that she's better, that's lightened up just a little. I'm not fasting. I am, Mm. you know, spending more time relaxing. Mm. Why does it take something that drastic to force me to do what I want to do? Like breathing air, you know, being stuck in the house, I'm working Mm -hmm. out way more than I did that Peloton has been upstairs for seven months. (laughs) And now I'm riding it, you know? So yeah. for me, it's, it's just recognizing that I want to try to be the best version of myself that I can. But then, like you said, not shooting on myself, mm. knowing that there will be seasons where you can focus more on your health and your fitness because you've got a little bit more time. And then there mm. will be seasons where you can focus on your family and your friends because you've got that kind of time. And then there will be seasons where it's about the work And you can grow in ways that you didn't know were possible because of, you know, the project you're doing or the people you're working around or the class that you're able to take that teaches you these things. And, And just being open to all of it, just saying yes to all of it and recognizing that even the crappy things that happen in your life, that those things can be used for good if you trust in the bigger picture, if you trust that you will be better on the other side of it.
1: Hmm. All of it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Simone. Thank this you. This has been such a pleasure. This was so great for me, too. Thank you again. Thank you. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Clean Brilliant Anatomy.